Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Phil Barker has more than 25 years of experience in the media. He edited NW and Woman's Day magazines and published such titles as Vogue, GQ, Delicious, Inside Out and Donna Hay. Today I'm talking with Phil Barker about his book Axed, Who Killed Australian Magazines. Phil Barker, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Delighted to be here. Axed begins with you leaving the Daily Telegraph for a new job on a new magazine at Australian Consolidated Press. What was the attraction to magazines for you and what did you find when you got there? Well, uh, I left the, the Murdochs for the Packers, which was interesting in itself. Um, what was interesting to me at the time is that, that Holt Street, the headquarters of News Corporation, was, was a fairly male-dominated and, you know, beer, rugby league sort of place at the time. And magazines were shiny and glamorous and much more feminine-driven as well. And so there was a lot of attractions there. So what was it like to work in magazines in the 1990s? Who were the main players? Who were the big characters? Well, the big characters early on in the very early 90s uh, was particularly Nene King, who, who was a, is a well-known name in, in magazines. There's lots of huge names, but Nene looms as, as the queen of, of magazines. She took Woman's Day from a fusty publication with um, knitting patterns on the cover to really embracing a great relationship with the royals and particularly Diana. And, you know, there was nowhere else for people to get the news at the time. So, so re- the magazines just jumped off the shelves into uh, readers' hands. This book's full of great quotes. I've got to start with this one. You sound like you were curing cancer when all you were doing was making up bullshit. Ah, you've cut right to the chase. Yeah, that was uh, said to me by a young creative in a, in a creative agency where I, I worked when I wasn't doing journalism or writing books. Um, and, uh, yeah, were we making up bullshit? Well, the answer is if there wasn't a photo to substantiate it, very probably. Um, we would do our best to stand things up as much as we could. But in the end, I think there was a um, sort of an unspoken uh, nod and a wink to readers that as long as the story inside the magazine was as exciting as the cover line, uh, then we'd given them some entertainment. And I think everyone understood that this was about entertainment as, as much as it was about um, you know, the truth, because ultimately it was fairly trivial matters about um, uh, very rich and wealthy people who didn't really notice what was going on. I want to take you back in time a little bit. Australians were once the leading consumers of magazines in the world, as I understand it. Yeah, per capita, yes. When would you say was the golden era of Australian magazines? The golden era of Australian magazines was definitely the the mid to late 90s um, with magazines doing, uh, you know, huge numbers, New Idea and Woman's Day selling, um, you know, regularly over over a million copies and I think the Australian Women's Weekly at, at, at half a million. 
And if you add in, you know, the, the advertising, $60,000 a page, um, uh, and the $3.25 cover price on a, on a weekly basis, they were just absolute licenses to print money um, and just utterly huge businesses. You write about money, but also the way money was wasted. How successful were Australian magazines? Where did all the money go? And finally, what were the opportunities missed in the process? Well, there was just a real sense that, sure, we, we knew the internet was, was coming to get us, but that was someone else's problem in the future. And, you know, when a magazine's making, you know, $10 million clear profit a year, um, and if you, you know, lose, lose 500,000 here or there at a party or everyone going on a plane somewhere or hair and makeup coming in for everybody before an event or something like that, well, you know, it didn't really do really matter. No one noticed. Um, but if a magazine's only making 500,000 a year and then people start spending that sort of money, then, then everybody notices. So it was, it was more a, a function of the huge 30% plus profit margins that the businesses were making. And there was just so much money around that that no one really took a close look at, at um, the personal expenses of you know, myself and a lot of people who are who are good friends of mine. And it became a real sense of entitlement that that we could just you know get a car to an event that we would fly here and go there and and sure there'd be there would be business meetings involved, but the bigger decisions were made around the boardroom table, not around lunch. So. A lot of those relationships, while they were great fun, they were also questionable in their value, I would suggest. The more you talk about it, the, the more I wish I was there. We didn't realise at the time, but it was a, a really golden moment in, in publishing history that's puffed away like so much smoke. Um, and I, I think that, that if we'd known at the time that it was going to change so profoundly, that we would have been a lot more careful a lot of that money that was spent on you know, huge events could have been put away for a rainy day and some magazines could exist that no longer do. Talking about big events, what about Women's Weekly turning 70? Tell me about that party. That was a particularly big moment. I think Kerry Packer just really wanted to congratulate. Um, you know, he loved his magazines. He loved the weekly particularly. And he just wanted a great big bash. So they, they had hundreds of people were brought in in, in limousines. Uh, the who's who of Australian publishing and, and media and entertainment. You know, Pavarotti was on the screen uh, congratulating the weekly on a, on a job well done. I think Mike Munro did a This Is Your Life of the Weekly, which is, which is a bit difficult because it couldn't giggle when it, uh, you know, saw its old English teacher. But um, by all accounts, you know, I, I was not there, I have to say, but, but I do remember the moment, by all accounts, it was an utterly huge affair. Would have cost, um, you know, well over a million dollars to execute, and it was just to go happy birthday weekly. Money well spent, I, I suppose. Uh, there are a lot of juicy moments that you talk about, and one phrase that I picked up on was client entertainment. What is that? That was when we would go out for lunch with a client, say uh, someone senior from Meyer or David Jones or from a media buying planning agency. And uh, basically what you wanted them to do was to put their ads into your magazine. And you talked about how we had run editorial around the ads to facilitate that happening. The David Jones versus Meyer, uh, for example, in the inserted magazine in the Sunday Herald Sun and the Sunday Telegraph. 
was a multi-million dollar fight between those two businesses in the late 90s and early 2000s. Just to have the first two right-hand pages was incredibly important to them. And we sort of stood in the middle of that negotiation and made as much money out of it as we could. Can I suggest that there's a little more to the term client entertainment than what you're giving away? Oh, I, I see I see where you're going. Oh, are you talking about there was a particular moment when when um, there was one or two clients who were making a lot of money and could advertise in the magazine, but they were um, uh, sort of bordering on the edge of, of white collar criminal, you might, you might say. And certainly the female sales directors did not want to be sending their um, female staff to those events. So myself and... Uh, you know, one of the few male sales guys went. And there was a particular moment I remember that there was young women around us who seemed to think that we were particularly hilarious. And given that we weren't the sort of blokes that attracted throngs of young women who thought we were hilarious, it took us about an hour or two to work out that they were probably paid to be there and, um, and indeed were um, very high-class sex workers. So my friend just asked one of the, one of them. He said, "Excuse me," and this is back in the day. So he said, "Excuse me, are you a prostitute?" And, and this young woman just laughed, and she said, "Of course!" You know, like that, they were stunned that we didn't we didn't realize. And um, yeah, the client was quite hurt when we did not avail ourselves of the services that had been paid for. So, but that was that was sort of rare and unusual. But there was. There was the odd client who really did did like going to a strip club, and um, you know we would happily oblige them and take them on the company dime. Um, and you'd you know sometimes run into other people there. I actually, you know, hand on my heart, didn't really like that sort of thing. It made me uncomfortable. I'd, I'd, I you know look at a poor young woman upside down on a pole and and just think to myself you know I had a young daughter at the time and I think to myself oh my God are you cold like are you okay is every, is everything going to be all right but um, that was you know kind of part of the job you know for for the blokes especially not a huge part um, you know I don't want to insinuate there was a great deal of filth and sin but on on the other hand there was also a lot of uh, dealers would turn up. Um, uh, to, to lunchtime at the wharf, I can tell you that. I actually found myself in a, not quite the same position, but a similar position. And I inquired with the young lady what uh, her profession was. And she said she was in commercial real estate. <laughs> well, I would have just thought she was a real estate agent. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Now, there was a lot of trouble embracing the digital world in the 2000s. What was the problem? I think the main problem was deals that were done very early on before there was a good understanding of digital, especially with Channel 9 and 9 MSN and, and 7 and Pacific did the same thing in that they outsourced the web components of, of the brand. And so they just gave away the content and lost control of it. And when it became increasingly important, um, 9 MSN were going, well, no, we'll, we need to optimize this content in the way that we want to. And the magazines had no control over their own digital destiny for decades. And it was in those decades that the work should have been done to, to spread those brands across multiple platforms. It didn't happen. And, they, and a lot of people were very frustrated and upset by that because they felt completely hamstrung in their ability to control that content once it had left the editorial office. And it wasn't given the care or the concern that, that um, the journos on the, on the editorial floors in, in Park Street 
and at Channel Seven and, and at um, Pacific Magazines might have given it. So it it um, was that was a real key problem in, uh, that came to bite magazines really hard in, in later years. Now the foundation of magazines revenue. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always been advertising. Another classic quote from your book. That's not just the patient bleeding money, but hemorrhaging arterial spurts from every orifice like an Ebola victim. That's a, something that I wrote after a list over the years for the last 10, 15 years, just showing the drop in advertising year after year after year after year. And it is an utterly horrific view of, of what happens, no matter which way you look at it. Just the money just bled out of magazines um, into online, and there was just very little that um, anyone seemed to be able to or want to do about it. What do you rank as the most spectacular fails in the magazine industry in that period? I think towards the end, I think the, the closures, you know, the multiple closures by the Bowers, especially of magazines like NW that I edited, the, the mergers of Clio and Dolly, to be uh, created by one team, magazines like Men's and Women's Health that were just knocked on the head that were doing really well, but have been resurrected by another publisher that, that just shows they did have a have a future. I think there was just a lot of panicking went on, especially um, around COVID times and, and the merger of Pacific and Bauer magazines. And I think there are a lot of magazines that are, that are dead that didn't have to be, but um, you know, people weren't looking at long-term brand futures. They're just looking at a short-term bottom line. And, and the answer is if, you know, if the widget isn't making money, you stop making the widgets. And, and magazines are a different thing to that. They have a, an emotional connection to readers. You, know, you mentioned before that we had the highest um, magazine readership per capita in the world for quite a number of years. And that speaks to like a, a deep emotional connection that people had with these titles. And it's just you know, sad to see so many of them gone. What titles have weathered the storm and, and how have they come through the storm? A great example is GQ magazine, one of my favourite magazines. Like um, I'll still buy an issue of British GQ if I'm going on a plane or something just because it just still has such heft and gravitas. It's so well written. It looks so good. It's just a, a beautiful physical thing. The Australian GQ does not exist in print anymore yet it is still a very strong and, and vibrant brand. And I think that's the key for magazines is to understand that you don't exist just as a print platform. You exist as a 24-7 right around the month surrounding the reader on, on multiple touch points. And if you think you can sit in an ivory tower and bang out something once a month and just tell readers what they want, well, that's not going to work. It has to be a two-way conversation uh, I think the understanding of data and what it means and, and what it tells you about what readers are wanting, um, I think is, is really important. So a strong digital play is, is utterly critical, but it's, it's an all-encompassing brand play that's important. Custom publishers like Medium Rare, who do Coles Magazine and Bunnings Magazine, other titles like that, they um, understand that incredibly well. Coles has more data about when people are wanting to buy strawberries and what sort of strawberry you know, recipes people are going to want than, than magazines ever had. And to be successful, that's where you need to go. And, and it's interesting, that's exactly what the publisher of Paragon, the um, business that's picked up men's health and women's health, uh, says, you know, like he's been around for a long time, uh, worked with 
Rupert's nephew, Matt Hanbury, the legendary Matt Hanbury back in the day. And he he certainly understands what he needs to do to make his, his magazines work. And he's got magazines about woodworking, about telescopes, and he's got a really lovely little business rolling there with two, two flagships that, that you know, Bauer Media didn't want and thought that they couldn't make work. Uh, niche markets like woodworking, uh, the way of the future? Premium and niche is a path to success. Like I'm really interested in guitars, you know, for example. And if I saw a good-looking guitar magazine, I would definitely pick that up because it would speak specifically to my niche interests. But your broad lifestyle magazines now, I think, I think really struggle just because this it's so easy with the internet to pick up your own specific interest. It sounds to me like the magazine publishing industry is a litany of errors, mismanagement, lost opportunities, terrible excess, failure to see the signs and uh, combined with perhaps the reaction times of a sloth. Are these the things responsible for the death of Australian magazines or is there more to it? No, that's that's basically it. It was it was the 9MSN and Yahoo 7 deals that were the main issue uh, around digital. And then it was really hard to, to catch up because all the best and brightest minds had gone elsewhere. Bauer Media, who came in and bought um, ACP off the Packers, incredibly successful publishers uh, internationally in, in Europe, and they absolutely know what they're doing, but they have a model where they repurpose content in multiple markets. And that's just not something that you could do here. They just didn't understand brand. They didn't understand, like they wanted to use recipes from Australian gourmet traveler, you know, shoot one bowl of green soup and just call it pea soup, call it mint soup, call it whatever. And, and green soup became a, sort of a shorthand for the, for the things that the, that the Bowers were doing. It didn't come from any sort of bad place. It just came from not understanding the market. And, you know, I think they did towards the end, but they, um, they took an absolute bath after um, just less than a decade and, and are out of the market now. Um, so I think their mismanagement and mishandling of magazines, you know, that was that was a very sad thing for me. So yeah, all of those things combined to, to I don't know if Australian magazines have been killed outright. Uh, I think there's actually, you know, after the green soup, there's been a lot of green sheets. And I think people who understand premium and niche understand the value of a good read. Um, you know, T Australia, um, New York Times magazine is going from strength to strength here, for example. Um, you know, Rolling Stone has been, been relaunched. Magazines for rural women are doing incredibly well. Uh, there's one that's, uh, I think it's, it's biannual and it costs nearly 30 bucks, but it, it's just packed with gorgeous pictures and stories of women on the land. Farmers aren't men, farms are run by, by a partnership. And um, these women finding their voices has been you know, a real boon for magazines. So I think magazines have been taken at the back and giving a, a, a thorough kicking. Um, but um, you know, there's still a, still a place for the people who are doing it right. Oh, there's a fantastic story that I, that I really love. Um, as I was researching the book, I, I remembered working with a guy whose name was Pugsley. And Pugsley uh, was the editor of, of Live to Ride. It's a biker magazine. It's the only magazine he'd ever worked on. I think he started there when he was 17. And I thought to myself, oh, I better Google, you know, what the hell happened to poor old Live to Ride. Well, nothing's happened to Live to Ride. Pugsley's bought the whole thing off a publisher. He's been doing it for four years. Uh, he's got 
uh, again, he surrounds the reader at multiple touch points. He's got a really good digital offering. He's got a great video offering. And he's made a real success of this thing. He knows what he's doing. He knows who he's talking to. And he's being unbothered by people like, people like myself. Um, I, I found his number and gave him a ring. I said, mate, it's one of your old crap managers. And he's like, which one? I was just delighted to see that Pugsley had made a go of Live to Ride by doing it the way he wanted it instead of the way that big publishers were making him do it. And he's making a success out of it. It's a great story. I want to finish with another great quote from your book. Magazines are not commodities. They are emotional touch points in the lives of millions of Australians. Does that still hold true? Yeah, I think so. I think I think those those people are drifting older, and I think magazines have got a lot of work to do um, to connect with younger readers. And, and you know, the publisher of, of Rolling Stone at the, at the moment, the Bragg Media, are doing a great job with connecting with young people online, not just with Rolling Stone. They've got a number of really powerful properties. Um, so I think that that you can make a connection with younger readers, but I think readers are drifting older. But yes, in the heyday, there was just this deep emotional connection between the reader and the magazine that, you know, as media has, has fractured and, and the internet has, has grown in strength, has, has sort of gone off the boil, but um, it's still there. And, and it's interesting. I think, you know, maybe a secondary market for this book, apart from people who've been in this industry or interested in the industry, is also, you know, people who just had a connection with, with magazines and have seen them shrink and get skinnier over the years, change, and then maybe your favourite magazine has disappeared. Um, and you want to know what the hell happened and why it happened. Phil Barker, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Oh, man, thank you for having me on. I've been talking to Phil Barker about his book, Axed, Who Killed Australian Magazines? It's published by Simon & Schuster, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.